This week, pimp my protein. We thought, oh, since it's actually really, really stable, we should, you know, take this chance and try to see what we can do to it. And the world's pluckiest coral reefs thriving against the odds. What we're trying to do is find the places that are doing better than they should, given the conditions that they're exposed to. Plus bespoke enzymes that use precious metals. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 16th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. The Euro 2016 football tournament kicked off this week in France. So for the next month, the teams will be doing what they do best, chasing an icosahedron around a pitch. Icosahedra are, of course, symmetrical shapes with 20 sides and 60 edges. And I'm cheating. The football shape is actually a truncated icosahedron built from 32 hexagons and pentagons. Nonetheless, shapes like these are not just popular among footballers. They appear all the time in biology as they pack closely and they hold a lot of volume for their size. And that makes them interesting for scientists who want to use biology's design principles to make new things. Grad student Yang Sha from the University of Washington in Seattle has made one of these icosahedra out of proteins. They use a software program called Rosetta to plug in an amino acid recipe and see if the right shape pops out. When they got the icosahedron out the other end, they then played around with it to add some bling, fluorescent proteins and some other proteins to act as gatekeepers to the inside. I called Yang to see how they did it and what their cages might one day carry. He started off by comparing his protein building blocks with another tiny construction material, DNA. A lot of our work has been compared to um, DNA nanotechnology because they're kind of the other type of bio-inspired material that They've obviously been able to show they can, you know, make smiley faces and boxes and cages and all sorts of shapes and sizes. But um, the advantages to proteins is definitely that. So if you look at DNA, there's only really four building blocks, G, C, A, and T. While um, for proteins, natural uh, amino acids, we have at least 20 to choose from. And that's not even counting the synthetic amino acids. So it really gives us a lot more kind of fine-tuning. How does it actually look to build one of these things? So you've got this software, and I, what I presume is happening is that you're, you're putting your protein code into the software and you're saying to it, will this build me an icosahedron, or will this, or will this? And you try and adjust it and adjust it and see what pops out the other end. Basically, we, you give Rosetta a structure, a target structure, and you ask Based on this structure, what is the best sequence that matches the structure? And what came out the other end then is a is a pretty impressive little nano cage shaped like a football, if you play UK football at least. <laughs> and it self-assembles as well. It knows how to kind of build itself. Yes, the whole self-assembling thing is really actually driven through symmetry. So if you look at our kind of icosahedral structure, every corner actually is three different monomers. So those guys come together to form a trimer, and the trimer, 20 copies of that trimer, symmetrically come together to form our cage. The idea is since we designed that interface, the lowest energy kind of most stable form this protein wants to be in has to be this cage. So it self-assembles not content with just having this nice stable icosahedron you then 
pimped it, right? You <laughs> you did some stuff where you fused fluorescent proteins into it. You put proteins on each of its faces, and and these are to give this is to give it more functionality. Yeah, since we finally got a icosahedra, so this is a really big structure with sixty building blocks. We thought, oh, since it's actually really really stable, we should you know take this chance and try to see what we can do to it. So we、uh, in this paper we describe how we fused. A bunch of fluorescent proteins to it, and also try to kind of fill the pentameric hole with another protein to see if we can get protein gating. Nice. Let's just examine the first of those. You fused these green fluorescent proteins into the little building blocks, and that means that it glows. You can measure the glow from it very precisely. It always glows at the same kind of magnitude, I suppose. Exactly. So the cool thing about Using proteins is if we fuse one GFP to every single building block, we have exactly sixty copies of fluorescent protein to every single cage. So it's very very accurate, and that's useful because you can use it then as a measuring stick to compare the fluorescence of other proteins. So let's talk about the second thing you've done. You've put little protein gates into the faces of the shape, or basically the holes left by the protein scaffold. Yes. So we thought maybe we can find a fivefold symmetric protein to plug that hole. As long as we computationally get the distance correct, we can in fact get a pentameric protein to sit in the middle of that hole and attempt to block the hole. And that means that when you want to get something inside the cage, you have to just give it the key that fits, and then the hole will open and stuff will flood in. So yeah, so、um, this is kind of a first step proof of concept type deal. So right now, the the pentameric protein simply just blocks the hole. So you can imagine the next step is if we can fuse in some sort of triggerable protein, then we have a gate that we can trigger for through things like pH or small molecule binding. So then we can have、um, controlled drug delivery, things like that. And these nano cages could also be used as vaccines, you say in the paper, because they can be disguised as viruses. Could you explain how that works? So a virus is basically a protein nano cage decorated with these viral proteins that stick out of the cage, and that's what allows the protein to stick to your cells and infect them. And it's also the way that、um, our bodies can detect these virus particles and try to produce antibodies against them. So one、um, potential application that we're really excited about is to decorate these nano cages with viral proteins on the surface to kind of mimic a virus. So they would look like virus particles, but they would be completely inert. Exactly. So they only have the shape of the virus, but they don't have the function to infect cells. They can't replicate. So they strictly will become a kind of biomedical product. That was Yang Shah, who's a grad student in David Baker's lab at the University of Washington in Seattle. Yang says that at the moment his team relies on naturally existing proteins as the pieces of scaffolding. Their eventual plan is to design proteins completely from scratch, which should give them more options for customization. Find the paper at nature.com/nature. By the way, one correction to issue from last week's show: I got my universities of Washington muddled up, and the researchers doing the rehab course were actually from Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Sorry about that, guys. Coming up later in the show, more researchers blinging up biology. 
First, though, is the research highlights with Noah Baker. Fish have evolved to live on land multiple times, suggesting that the leap from water to solid ground may not have been that unusual. Researchers looked at over 30 different fish families that include amphibious species, which can live in water and on the land. It's likely that each of these species evolved independently towards the amphibious lifestyle. And in one family, the blennyfish, up to seven different species had taken their chances in open air, perhaps to avoid getting stuck in tidal pools. More in the journal Evolution. Growing plants to make biofuels sounds like good news for the climate, but using too much fertiliser could have a damaging effect. Researchers put varying amounts of nitrogen fertilisers on fields, and they found that too much fertiliser can slash the climate benefits in half. Nitrous oxide emissions grew exponentially with more fertiliser, and so did the amount of nitrate leaching out of the crops. And applying more fertiliser only boosted crop yields for the first year anyway. All in all, the authors suggest minimising fertilisers to ensure the biofuels are environmentally gentle. Find the paper in Environmental Research Letters. We do a sound check at the beginning of each of our interviews and we usually ask people a basic question, like what they were up to over the weekend. From researcher Josh Sinner, we had this unusual response. I had dinner at Buckingham Palace on Monday night. At the end of the evening, we all made a toast and it was uh, to the Queen. But Josh is not a socialite. He's a social scientist and the palace had invited him to a meeting about how to conserve coral reefs. Wait, a social scientist studying coral reefs? I got my start as a Peace Corps volunteer in Jamaica and I was working in a a coral reef marine park, and I really recognised that the conservation problems were inherently social and cultural issues, not biological ones. Um, if you want to manage a fishery, uh, you'll have a very difficult time telling the fish what to do. It's people you have to manage. People around the world rely on reefs, as fisheries, as tourist destinations, or as buffers from storms and cyclones. And they're incredibly diverse ecosystems. Josh would know he's been to a lot of them. Caribbean and Jamaica and Mexico, um, all throughout the Pacific. Many of these reefs East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Madagascar are threatened by climate change or local human activity. But when Josh and his team looked more closely at data from thousands of reefs around the world, they spotted something curious. You know, many scientific studies look at averages or trends. Our study took a slightly different approach, and we focused on the outliers, the places that were bucking the trend. And we looked for places that, for all intents and purposes, should have been degraded, but weren't. And we called these our bright spots. Now, these aren't pristine, problem-free areas, but their fish populations seem to be healthier than you'd think, given all the problems. We wanted to learn what these places were doing differently, why they were able to withstand the pressures that, that caused other places to collapse, and whether lessons from these places could inform coral reef conservation in other areas. The idea of looking for bright spots came to Josh from a totally different field. I spoke to him about the concept and then how he and his team have applied it to coral reefs. Uh, It was a story from Save the Children in Vietnam in the 1990s, and they were focusing on uh, childhood malnutrition. They went into some villages and they, they identified the poorer children that were not malnourished, and they thought of these as their bright spots. 
And they went to the mothers of, 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 these, um, of these kids and they found out they were finding little crabs and shrimp in the, in the rice paddies and grinding these up and, and putting them in the kids' rice. And they were also feeding their kids four times per day. The, the portions were a lot smaller. But by breaking up the meals and by adding these crabs, the, the kids became uh, less malnourished. They had these mothers teach other mothers in the villages, and this cut down childhood malnutrition by 65% in these villages. And so I thought, you know, we could, we could apply this approach to conservation. So how is this different from the usual conservation methods? You know, a lot of conservation efforts are focused on identifying places of high ecological integrity under minimal threat and protecting those. What our approach does is actually not just look for the most pristine areas that aren't impacted by people, right? What we're trying to do is find the places that are doing better than they should, given the conditions that they're exposed to. What have you learned from this study about how these bright spots become bright and stay bright? Bright spots were characterized by high levels of participation or engagement and management by the local communities, strong local traditions with the sea, and the last thing we found was that there was actually deep water refuges for fish and corals. One of the 15 bright spots happened to be a place that I'd been working in for 15 years, Karkar Island in, in Papua New Guinea. And the part where we work is a really interesting place because there's a lot of important connections uh, that people have to the sea and a lot of, a lot of practices uh, that they still do. And so, you know, one example is a customary marine tenure situation, which allows them to exclude quote-unquote outsiders, right? So people that aren't from their village or aren't from uh, the particular clans. It's not a sort of free-for-all place like many parts of, uh, uh, of the oceans. Uh, another thing that they do on Karkar is they close off parts of the reef in anticipation of a big social event to actually uh, provide fish for a feast that they hope to hold at the end. And how about the dark spots then? Do you have an example of what happens in places that are underperforming? I did the Peace Corps in the Montego Bay Marine Park in Jamaica, and that turned out to be one of the, the dark spots. Some of the big issues, I would say a history of exclusion, fishermen didn't have decision-making authority, they never really got a say in the rules and regulations that were happening in the park. It had reached such a terrible level that uh, fishermen went to the house of one of the park rangers while he wasn't home and pointed a spear gun at his wife and said, tell your husband to lay off the fishermen or you're going to get killed. That was the, the, the history of, uh, you know, local involvement in conservation. Well, it, and it goes to prove your point very neatly, doesn't it? The biology of coral reefs and the preservation of coral reefs is actually a human problem. It, it, that's exactly right. It's uh, quite often, you know, the coral reef crisis is a crisis of governance and a crisis of social dilemmas. That was Josh Sinner, who's at James Cook University in Queensland, Australia. He works at the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. Find the Bright Spots paper and study the map for yourself at nature.com nature. Coming up in the news chat, we'll be asking, what has the European Union ever done for science? But before that, improving on nature. In biology, chemical reactions are going on all the time, but often they need a little help. This comes from enzymes. These little molecular helpers perform reactions at their active site in a process called catalysis. Now there's one type of enzyme which uses a metal in its active site, imaginatively named metalloenzymes. 
The metals in these enzymes are typically things like iron, copper, or nickel, and they're involved in all kinds of biological processes, from nitrogen fixation to the removal of toxins from the body. But John Hartwig from the University of California, Berkeley, and his team wondered what would happen if they replaced the typical biologically available metals with more exotic, precious metals like platinum or rhodium. Noah Baker spoke to John to find out more. So the enzymes operate under mild conditions, uh, are very selective for reaction of one molecule over another, but they're very limited by uh, having the biological metals like iron or copper in the active site. But most of what chemists do, uh, use as catalysts, most often they are precious metals like platinum, palladium, um, rhodium, because there's a very wide range of reactions that they catalyze. And so what we'd like to do is to broaden the scope of the reactions that can be done within that enzyme so we can combine the broad range of reactions that the chemists, you know, catalysts will do, but be able to take advantage of the mild conditions and selectivity and, and binding of substrates that characterize enzymes. Now, you and your team, you looked at these um, metalloenzymes and then thought, hey, what, what if it was some other metal? Tell me about what you did. We, uh, I guess, used a genetic trick uh, and were able to cause a bacteria, E. coli, very commonly used to make a protein. That's how you know, in the laboratory, most proteins are made. But our trick was to do that under conditions where the precursors to the, to the active site, the iron active site, are absent and where the concentration of iron is very low. So the protein that gets made lacks the iron and lacks the organic portion around the iron that uh, creates its active site. What that allows us to do then is to reinsert the active site, but with a different metal that we put in in the laboratory or just purchased from a chemical supplier. And so the resulting protein is just like the natural protein, as close as we can tell, but with a change of the metal. So you tried throwing in a bunch of these precious or rare earth metals. How did it go? What, what happened? Well, we found that uh, there's a, a pretty wide range of those metals would give us some product, but um, there was one in particular uh, that gave us the highest yields and the fastest rates, and that was uh, the active site containing iridium as the metal. And not just iridium, but iridium with a, a carbon attached to it that is not something that would be in a biological system. And that combination uh, gave us, at the beginning, pr uh, reasonable rates, and then we could use uh, laboratory evolution techniques to increase the rates and increase the selectivity for one product over another. So tell me about that. You're using a natural basis for, the, for your system, but then putting an unnatural thing in, but then using evolution, another natural process, to develop it further. Yeah, so one of the reasons we wanted to combine the activity of enzymes with the scope of reactions of the precious metals is that uh, a special feature of enzymes is that they can be evolved. Right? So, of course, they are evolved naturally over millions of years, um, but there's now really remarkable ways to evolve them in the laboratory, or at least mimic evolution in the laboratory. And we use genetic techniques to introduce mutations that would change the uh, amino acids of the protein that surround the metal. And so tell me, what kind of reactions are you trying to achieve here? What kind of things are you, are you managing to do with these catalysts? I think that the range of reactions that one can imagine catalyzing is very broad. You know, in principle, we could catalyze almost any reaction that the 
an iridium or rhodium or platinum compound will catalyze. Um, in the work that we've done so far, we were interested in trying to show that these systems could catalyze a reaction that biology does not catalyze, you know, that nature doesn't catalyze. And, and one example that you give in your paper of this kind of abiotic reaction is the forming of carbon-carbon bonds where then in the molecule there was previously only carbon-hydrogen bonds. Now, natural enzymes can't do that, but your little hybrid enzymes can, and that's what opens up a whole host of possible applications for the enzymes. So things like agrochemistry or pharmaceutical production... And that means that they're versatile, they are evolvable, they've got wide ranges of possible applications. What's the catch? There's got to be a catch. <laughs> of course, there's always great challenges. One of the uh, criticisms of enzymes is that they are not as stable. They are not, you know, they have evolved to operate around room temperature or 37 degrees if it's in the human uh, body. Some reactions, even if they are uh, with a catalyst, will require higher temperatures. And if you want to run those reactions for days and days or months at a time, you need something that's very stable. The second challenge is that the enzymes are specific for certain sizes and shapes of molecules. So there may be a reaction that can go specifically at a certain kind of bond, but maybe the molecule you want to do that reaction on doesn't have the right shape to fit the enzyme. And again, that's where the evolution might come in to be able to alter the structure of the enzyme to allow for different shaped molecules to bind in the, in the pocket of the enzyme and to undergo the reaction. That was John Hartwig from the University of California, Berkeley. You can find out more about his work at nature.com slash nature. Time now for our weekly news chat and Alison Abbott joins us all the way from Munich. Hi, Alison. Hi, Adam. Now, a few weeks ago, Nature ran a poll of UK scientists and actually EU scientists, but of the UK scientists that they surveyed, 83% said that they wanted to stay in the European Union. That's compared to polls which seem to imply the general population are kind of on a knife edge between remaining and leaving. Now, this week, Nature have run a special feature on the benefits of the EU and the, the cons of the, the EU to scientific research. Alison, one of the most notable aspects of being in the EU is freedom of movement. How, how does freedom of movement affect research? I, I think one of the things that the European Union has done is to make it easier for scientists in one country to work in another country. Uh, before, it was quite difficult for one researcher to go and work in a different country for all sorts of reasons, um, You know, even things like tax reasons or uh, just incompatibility of employment contracts, things like that. Freedom of movement of people in, um, in Europe is a fundamental tenet of the European Union. So we remember, I guess, the situation of Switzerland. Switzerland is not a European Union country, but it is, a uni for the purposes of research, it has been an EU associate member which has given it essentially equal rights to the European Union research. When the, they had a referendum which stopped free movement of citizens of Europe in and around Switzerland, they lost that status. They were no longer able to compete as equal, on equal status with other EU members. 
And this caused enormous consternation among scientists. What are the main things that EU research money is is invested in and spent on? Well, of course, that's a very big question. We're talking about uh, a budget which can be read as like 960 billion at its um, broadest definition of scientific money. But in the money that's available to scientists to do research, there's a defined budget of something like 75 billion, which is divided into certain areas for research, which includes the societal challenges, that's like 28 billion over a seven-year period, and the European Research Council, which is the very beloved um, research agency, which gives individuals large amounts of money to do totally basic research of their own choice. That is 13.3 billion. Are there actually examples of research projects that might not have happened without the EU? Well, there definitely are. Um, In the projects that are funded under these so-called societal challenges, and people don't really like them because they end up being very complicated and bureaucratic. However, some of the things that come out of that do end up being unique. And in my reporting career, I've actually watched scientists going from being very sceptical and complaining about these programmes to to coming out totally starry-eyed about them because they've achieved things that they couldn't have achieved in any other format at all in the world. One of the things that is most loudly complained about with reference to the European Union is the notion of bureaucracy, endless red tape. Is that something that seems to be a legitimate concern as far as EU research is concerned? Yes, it is a legitimate concern and it's absolutely ghastly. And the European Commission, which is the agency which um, has to execute all of these research projects, knows very well. And while people like to complain about the European Commission imposing this really hideous amount of bureaucracy, you know, checking, double-checking, form-filling, etc., They're looking at the wrong target. The target is really the political side of the European Union. These politicians don't want to see taxpayers' money wasted, and they are also afraid of um, corruption. And all of this is equally valid. But in order to avoid the slightest chance of corruption or misspending, they insist on these, um, these rules of checking and assertion and documentation, and the Commission has to deal with them. But in general, it's getting a bit better. Is there any evidence whether the European Union has an effect on overall research quality across Europe? Well, I think I can say to that definitely yes. So, but the the jewel in the crown is really the European Research Council, which is a relatively new body, and this introduces... uh, a very high level of selection for very large amounts of money. And it has allowed the whole of Europe to compete with each other. And uh, this, of course, raises the whole game for everybody. Alison, of course, you're based in Munich. Is Brexit being discussed very widely where you are? Absolutely. It's, it's one of the headline topics. But particularly this week and last week, it's when we're coming closer to the vote. There's a lot of coverage and a lot of debate in the media. The news magazine Spiegel wrote a large number of its articles this week 
in English as well as German, um, also to promote the view, please, UK, don't leave us, don't go. Um, it's Yes, it's been sort of exciting. I don't think I'm going to sleep on the night of 23rd of June myself. I'm not sure I will either. Alison, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Read the whole piece on the EU online at nature.com forward slash news, where you'll also find a new result from LIGO only just announced and an insightful feature about IPS cells, looking at the 10 years since they were discovered. We'll be back next week, regular as an atomic clock on a bullet train. In the meantime, we're off to celebrate an award we won, Best Podcast at the Drum Online Media Awards. Woohoo! Feedback always welcome to podcast at nature.com or at Nature Podcast on Twitter. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. If this episode of the Nature Podcast has whet your appetite for scientific research, check out Scientific Reports, the open access home for all scientifically sound research. They publish articles from all areas of the natural and clinical sciences. If you publish with them, you can expect fast and fair peer review and great exposure with over 2 million visitors a month to the website, nature.com slash srep. If you're one of the visitors, you can expect studies ranging from how to tell apart African from Asian elephant tusks using handheld X-ray devices to a study suggesting that pain tolerance correlates with how many friends you have. For all this and more, visit scientific reports at nature.com slash srep.